Uh, well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for being here at uh, Peace Talks, the uh, March Peace Talks for 2019. Uh, for those of you that might not know me, my name is Brooke Prentice, and uh, one of the roles I have is as Peace Talks Director, um, but I'm also an Aboriginal Christian leader uh, and the CEO of Common Grace. Uh, and uh, I'll welcome some guests in a moment. But we're just going to start um, with an acknowledgement of country. Together tonight, we acknowledge the traditional custodians upon whom lands we meet and gather. They are the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation. Uh, and we pay our respects to the elders and leaders past, present and future. We acknowledge and remember that the Eora Nation is made up of 29 clans bordered by three sacred rivers and then the oceans and the waterways to the east. We pay our respects to those elders and leaders appointed by Almighty Creator as custodians and stewards of these lands since time immemorial. We remember. We acknowledge that country uh, is not just, and I'm a Waka Waka woman, so I'm a visitor to these lands and we are all visitors to these lands here tonight. Uh, that we acknowledge that country is not just about land. It's trees, plants, animals, birds, fish, land, waters, mountains, sky and all peoples. And for thousands of years, uh, the Gadigal peoples and as we think more broadly across these lands now called Australia, the Aboriginal peoples were caretakers, stewards, custodians, of the whole system of law and living handed down from the creator and passed from generation to generation to generation. When we pay our respects to the elders past, present and future, is it, it is a deep thank you to them. These are real people, generations of peoples. Uh, and when we think through colonization uh, and we acknowledge that coming up next month is the 250 years of Cook coming here to Cornell. We acknowledge the damage that has been done, the destruction, the death, and the survival. And so we acknowledge, we remember, and we are challenged uh, to work towards a uh, better relationship, uh, what I like to call friendship. I believe if we called reconciliation friendship, we could close the gap a lot quicker, and uh, there's so many other things that we could do much better uh, for all peoples in these lands now called Australia. And as I close this acknowledgement of country, uh, in recognition that we've only just had International Women's Day as well, as we celebrate the Aura Fisher women and their incredible role uh, appointed by the Creator for the Aura Nation's peoples. Uh, we think of the Aura Fisher women but in the words of Auntie Betty Pike, a great Aboriginal Christian leader, and this is her blessing. And as we enter this time of peace talks um, and this particular topic. And so in the words of Auntie Betty Pike, may you always stand as tall as a tree, be as strong as the rock Uluru, as gentle and still as the morning mist, hold the warmth of the campfire in your heart. And may the Creator Spirit always walk with you and walk with us.
Amen. Uh, so thank you for being here tonight at Peace Talks. Uh, uh, we do have some, we're light on numbers tonight and that's part of the weather as well as uh, we think about a global pandemic as well. We cannot turn away from it, although hopefully tonight we can and centre um, on creation care and climate change and these sorts of topics. Um, uh, and so uh, Peace Talks uh, is a monthly talk held on a Thursday or Saturday night um, and peace being where we engage with political, ethical, artistic and cultural engagement. Uh, and so uh, very thankful for those of you that have come along tonight. I mentioned I'm the CEO of Common Grace. One of our justice areas is climate justice and creation care justice. Um, and today we had a gathering and so um, we've got a few people from across these lands now called Australia who have joined us here tonight. And so we thank you for being here and being part of this, um, as well as people who are local and um, new visitors as well. Uh, on uh, this piece of paper, and so there's some at the back, uh, our next Peace Talks is Saturday the 18th of April, uh, where we're going to have a um, all going well on gatherings less than 500 people, um, although I'd love to see 500 people at Peace Talks. Uh, but Saturday the 18th of April will be a panel with uh, Kylie Maddox-Pigeon, Erin uh, Sessions, Rosie Shorter and myself. Uh, and this is part of, uh, it's called Marginalisation and Grace, Centres and Peripheries in a World Turned Inside Out. Um, and it's part of a, a selection of papers and a panel that we're hoping to present at a conference in New Zealand in August, if it still goes ahead. Um, so you get a sneak peek into uh, what that is all about and our four different topic areas, but how we weave them together as well. So um, would love you to join us and spread the word about that. So please take one of those to put on your fridge or put in your church or um, share with someone else and invite them along to Peace Talks. Uh, and so tonight uh, we have um, uh, Reverend Jason Johns with us. Uh, he uh, is uh, very amazing. <laughs> and um, But we do apologise, Dr Byron Smith, um, uh, Reverend Dr Jason, um, uh, Byron is sick uh, and so is unable to join us tonight. Um, so... Uh, we're kind of doing a little bit of peace talks on the fly because Jason and Byron had intended to present together and then Q&A. Um, and based on the size of the group, we'll probably have an interactive discussion after Jason presents for us. Um, so if you could please uh, welcome Jason. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Hey, everybody. Um don't know that we need the uh, microphone, except we've got people listening to us. So if you're tuning in from iTunes or wherever else you're listening, uh, you're very welcome as well. Um, it's uh, great to be down here. I'm down from uh, the land of the Gumbangia people, which is up kind of around Coffs Harbour. Um, and I think I'm just going to leap straight in and then do a bit of explanation later. So blokes birthed the Bible and men mediated its meaning for many a generation, but that's not the point today that I'm making. It was also written by Homo sapiens, by you and by me, or at least by creatures with our ancestry. 
sapiens wrote the scripture. Get the picture? So we have Genesis 1, how it all begun. Let us make man in our image to subdue and to rule. Through to Genesis 9, where God says to Noah, now I give it all to you. Woohoo! But what's a tree-hugging Christian to do? Well, we can turn to Genesis 2. The Adam from the Adamah, the human from the humus, created to serve and protect. And yet serve is translated till. And that was probably their intention, because even though that story is really old, it was compiled after the invention of agriculture, turning all that horrible scrub to garden. Filling larders, settling down, claiming titles, erecting fences, mine and yours, my land, my animals, my women. Because blokes birthed the Bible and men mediated its meaning and humans did the writing and humans do the reading. But because a bunch of women worked really hard and long with a few male supporters, the church finally heard their song and especially that of their daughters. So perhaps all the other species can get a look in too. Not just as pets or produce or food or glue, but as much part of God's story as me and you. Our neighbour, our family, as persons because they have personality too. But of course animals can't work at it hard and long, so it's going to be down to all of us to sing their song. Ta-da. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, uh, yes, as Brooke said, I'm a, a minister and a minister in the Uniting Church um, and work for an increasingly big part of the institution now where everything that you want to say has to go through increasing levels of comms people and uh, messaging and so on. Uh, so a couple of years ago, I started doing poetry as a way of basically being able to say whatever I wanted to say in two minutes with no footnotes. So thank you for that little indulgence. Um, but, uh, yeah, as Brooke said, we gather here... Um, the shadow is not the right word, but kind of in the shadow of International uh, Women's Day. And we know that it's not nearly enough to just end the abuse of women. We need to actually shift all the thinking which casts women in an inferior light to men. Uh, in themselves, in their relationships to men, and in their relationships to God. So, you know, benign paternalism is a good start, but it's not nearly enough. And I guess the main idea I want to get across briefly today is that there's an analogous conversation to be had about our relationship with of men and women with other animals. At the very least, I want to kind of remind us that we are surrounded by non-human neighbours because every creature on this planet is affected by human activity. And if your neighbour's someone who you affect or are able to affect, then animals are our neighbours. You might also be persuaded that animals are part of our family or I guess more appropriately humans are part of the big family of life here on earth and that these non-humans are people because they have personality so they're persons and so I guess the question we might you know circle back to together is how do we uh, sing this song how do we hear the song of our neighbours and then how do we sing it together to other people very loosely the second half of the talk you were going to get tonight because Byron was going to do the first half is about singing the songs of our neighbours and our kin and very briefly I just want to get you talking about that, and then we'll hear from some scientists that have been listening to the cries of creation and what's going on at the moment around us uh, in terms of the fires and what's going on with the Barrier Reef and climate change. And then from some Aboriginal leaders uh, 
some from back in the 70s and Pastor Ray Minikin and Brooke. And we haven't decided yet whether Brooke's going to stand up here and read her own thing that I'm quoting or I'm just going to quote her. But um, that's kind of the trajectory of where we're going over the next 10 minutes before we uh, come and talk together. So first of all, you on the next slide. I've come up with two deliberately very open questions and I um, would just like you to find a neighbour to sit next to. And we don't have to rush so much now because Byron's not here, so I'm going to give you a bit over a couple of minutes each to kind of address these questions. Who are some animals in your life? And it can be animals around the world you know about or you know, that you have a personal connection with. And what do they sing about? What, what are they saying? Um, so it's that easy. So if you'd like to kind of slide in your pews and find someone to talk to, I'll keep time for you. And I'm suggesting the way we do it is one person just talks for a couple of minutes. And if there's silence and you need to think about it, that's fine. Um, even though I'm a Protestant and we despise silence more than anything else in church, uh, <laughs> sit with the silence. Um, and then I'll tell you when it's time to kind of swap over. Um, I should have also said at the start that my understanding is Paddington Anglican kind of hosts this event for all kinds of people. So even though I, you know, I'm within the Christian tradition and that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, I don't want to make the assumption that everyone here is Christian and I spend most of my life working with people who aren't, including my wife and children. Um, so, yeah, please don't feel like you've got to fit into some culture that you're imagining exists in this place. Two, so find a partner and then I'll give you two minutes. Who are some animals in your life or in the world and what are they singing about? I was musing on the relationship I have with my domestic dog, my pet, um, and the fact that there's a very long evolutionary history of, I guess, co-domestication. Um, so the relationship we have, that there's genuine chemical reactions that demonstrate we have love for each other. Uh, but the other is I planted a bottle brush tree right near my backyard for the native birds because I wanted to have a relationship with them in you know, some indirect way and not just have a backyard full of pigeons and sparrows that were introduced by Europeans. Uh, yeah, so I'm quite interested in koalas. There's a group of, uh, well, population of koalas down in the southern part of Sydney, down near Campbelltown. I'm involved with a group that we're trying to save because there's a, the local council has approved a development to sort of build 1,700 homes on top of them and destroy them, basically, so that's uh, what I'm interested in. Yeah, I was just thinking about um, different animals that, like we were talking about how some, you can kind of tell when some animals are out of their natural habitat, or like ibises, known as bin chickens. Like, <laughs> you can kind of tell that there's a yearning for, um, just for them to be in the environment that they were created to be in. Um, yeah, so I would say that that's their song, is to be, um, yeah, where they were meant to be and in that environment and with the right food and the right, the clean air and everything. Um. Uh, yeah, 
same with that gentleman across there, you know, one of my favourite. I, I don't own a dog, but uh, one of the favourite animals that I like is uh, dogs. I think they live up to their uh, reputation of uh, human beings' best friend. You know, there's no doubt about that. And uh, I do a lot of walking, and every time I walk past Centennial Park and I run into dogs, especially Labradors, they don't know, they don't know me from above, so but they start wagging their tail, yeah, I mean. So it's something about dogs, you know. Uh, it's uh, just like uh, unconditional love, you know. But uh, we've got to be mindful that dogs, you know, uh, I'm not trying to say that dogs are gods, like God who's giving us unconditional love, but if you turn the spelling of dog around, <laughs> it is God. So we have to be really careful. Um, I, uh, birds are really important for me and um, I particularly love um, the point of time in the morning uh, just before the sun comes up the kookaburras always start first um, and then uh, after the sun comes up it's then the magpies and then the crows start and being able to be awake at those times of the morning to, to hear the three in their succession and everywhere I've been around the country and been able to tune into that I've heard that succession um, and then often if you're near a farm it's then the chickens start after that so it's amazing this um, order that there seems to be uh, natural order and um, but the one that I was thinking about the singing or the talking um, of the animals is um, the white cockatoos and uh, home for me is um, up in Redcliffe just north of Brisbane and uh, when they were building one of the big um, tunnels the inner city bypass and they had to destroy all of these trees and so all of a sudden we saw all these white cockatoos just circling the sky and screeching and screeching and we'd never seen them um, in those sorts of flocks like that and um, now here in Sydney if I go for a walk down to Rushcutters Bay you see all the white cockatoos as well screeching and screeching and so um, what they're trying to, to tell us and talk to us about so for me it's about their homelessness. Alright so I just want to spend uh, a few minutes not telling you anything new but I just kind of uh, recapping what uh, um, recapping some important things to say that might then lead us into a, a kind of fruitful discussion together. So one of the, the kind of questions uh, that's often brought up you know, in church circles is who is my neighbour? And we kind of apply it in different discussions and so on. Uh, and I guess um, many of us have been confronted by you know, these kind of images uh, since a bit before Christmas time. Uh, and if a working definition of a neighbour is anyone who is affected by our actions or could be, then I think it's arguable that you know, many, if not all other creatures, are our neighbours in that sense. Uh, because ecologists tell us that there's no creature on the planet that's not affected by human activity, except maybe the bacteria in the bottom of thermal vents somewhere in the bottom of the ocean. The scientists where I live up uh, around the mid-north coast um, have told, well, a few months ago were saying that probably about 70% of the koala population up there had been killed in bushfires uh, and um, that's devastating in itself, but also because the mid-north coast has had the biggest and healthiest koala populations in New South Wales and probably Australia as I understand it. So massive devastation of that population. Uh, last week, one of the ecologists doing the on the ground work, um, even though they're only halfway through, said that that's actually probably an underestimate. It's probably a lot more than 70% that have been killed. 
just in New South Wales and Victoria, you might have seen uh, the figure that was thrown around of over a billion animals have died in the bushfires in New South Wales and Victoria. Um, again, that seems to be a, a massive underestimate, but that's you know, the echidnas, the wombats, the possums, the kangaroos, the gliders, the wallabies, the bandicoots, the antichinus and the dunarts, the rats, the snakes, the lizards and the birds. It doesn't include all the bats and platypuses and frogs and fish and insects. And of course, we know that the survivors face burn injuries, smoke inhalation damage, starvation and dehydration. And in fact, in the mid-north coast, uh, the beekeepers up there uh, had to stop their staff going into the forest because they were going in to see which beehives had survived. Uh, and the sound of screaming injured and dying animals was just so overpowering that their staff were freaking out. So they uh, had to bring them out of the forest. So, uh, you know, apocalypse is not an inappropriate word for what our neighbours have been through recently. A and people are responding to uh, these animal neighbours uh, very powerfully. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of charity directed towards animals and a lot of money raised. Uh, for you know koalas in particular, but there's still not a lot of people demanding justice for them. And I thought that might be something we talk about later: is what does justice look like for non-human neighbours? If we go to the next slide and the end of the depressing reminders for tonight, sorry, the one, but yep, uh, the Barrier Reef. You know, we'll remember the the bleaching events that happened in 2016-17. Uh, last week, a study came out saying that uh, they've been looking at the survival rate of new corals, so the new polyps that develop, uh, and there's a 90% reduction in the survival rate of new corals that are trying to form on the reef, so the reef's ability to regenerate itself has been massively diminished. Right at the moment, scientists are waiting to see whether the reef's going to warm slightly or cool slightly, and we're basically on the threshold of the next massive coral bleaching. Like it's already started, but they just don't know yet whether it's going to be as big as the previous ones or not. If the weather and ocean patterns don't change in the next couple of weeks, it'll be the third massive bleaching event in five years. So again, this is what's happening to our neighbours, not only the corals, but uh, certainly, you know, if your imagination can only stretch so far, then the hundreds of millions of animals that rely on the, the reef for their survival as well. I noticed that even the government uh, has uh, not been able to keep it completely under wraps. Uh, the Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority uh, has said that climate change impacts on coral reefs are predicted to worsen and critically endanger the survival of reefs around the world without the strongest possible climate mitigation. And there's a word that we haven't heard from our Prime Minister for a little while. So that's our, that's our neighbours. On the next slide, I just want to really quickly uh, talk about the bit that super interests me and kind of always has uh, the kind of evolutionary and genetic story of life on Earth, which puts us not just as neighbours, but actually as relatives to every living thing on the planet. Uh, that kind of reminder that the human story is a tiny part of this massive story of life. Um, if we had a metre to tell the whole story of human existence, then we'd need 40 kilometres to tell the story of life on Earth. Like we just this dot. Um, and in fact, that yellow dot's far too big, but it's meant to kind of emphasise that in this flowing river of life, uh, we've only just arrived, soon we'll probably be gone, depending on your view of uh, you know, the end times. 
Uh, and then the story of life on Earth will continue without us probably for hundreds of millions of years, if not billions, uh, with the bacteria. So it's a challenge to Western Christianity, uh, which I think has been rightly labelled the most human-centred religion the world has ever known, to kind of locate ourselves in this story of, of life. Um, and uh, perhaps many of us acting like the uh, prodigal child who's kind of burning through the family's inheritance and refusing to humble ourselves and return to the family yet. So, so the other creatures, I guess, have been singing their song with God for hundreds of millions of years before we came along. And if we leave them anything to do it, they'll probably continue to sing those songs after we're gone as well. So going back to our koala friend, if we're looking for a metaphor, as I said, she's our neighbour. I think most people are kind of happy with that. I wonder how you feel about saying that that's our sister up there or maybe a cousin or kind of distant relative and with the idea that she's a person because she has personality and anyone that spends any time with animals, I mean dogs are an easy example, but pretty much any animal, chickens, you can tell one chicken from another because they act differently, they have their own personalities. A and we do, like, it's not a novel idea to say this koala is a person, we respond to her as a person when we see these images and we see, you know, that there's a public a uh, sense of connection uh, and a feeling that, you know, this person matters, even if people wouldn't quite use that language. But when our attention then kind of starts to drift away and the next thing comes along to distract us and the government starts talking about the timber quotas that need to be met uh, and about salvaging the burnt trees uh, as quickly as possible, which starts with the biggest trees because they're the most valuable timber, which are also the trees that she needs the most, she kind of drifts back to being a, a thing or an it or, you know, a, a casualty. So I flagged before, we might you know, circle back to it in the discussion. She got charity in the fires and so did all of her koala friends, but what would it mean for her to have justice if she survives into the future? And now I'd like to... Uh, bring us some words from our, some of our Aboriginal uh, leaders in the country um, who have uh, experienced and lived in life in very different ways from the way Western, most of Western civilization has. Uh, whether we're Christian or not, everyone that lives in Australia has been influenced by the kind of thought forms of the Christian church, I think. So the first... Um, the first little bit is just a, a small quote, uh, which I think is very significant. It's from uh, 1977 when the Uniting Church started, uh, and the Uniting Church is the church I'm part of. So back when most of the Uniting Church was still talking about creation as stuff that we should share fairly amongst ourselves. So, um, you know, talking about responsible sharing of resources, which basically meant how do we divvy up the pie and make sure that all the humans get some. The uh, Aboriginal delegates to the Northern Territory Synod, uh, which was uh, facing uranium mining, were saying things like, we're deeply concerned about the damage that this will have on our mother land and to her children, the Aboriginal people. So there's a completely different sense of, uh, of telling the story and of understanding what was going on. Pastor Ray Minikin uh, did a great video uh, for us a few years ago, and I just want to read you a couple of um, bits from this, but we can make the link available for people that want to watch the whole thing. Ray talks about the trees and the animals and the stars and the moon and the rocks and the landscape are all part of our family, all brothers and sisters. 
All that God has created is good for all of us. And by that he means all creatures. We prefer the word creator, the one who made everything. It's a better starting point. Then we can see that we are all related, that every life form is a part of what God created. Yet we have sinned and destroyed so much as humans. Jesus didn't just come to save me from my sins. That's so minute. He came to save the universe. So salvation for me is not just how do we save ourselves, but how do we save the whole blooming planet, God's creation. And another fine uh, Aboriginal leader who's known to many of us in this room, uh, <laughs> wrote, uh, has written many pieces for uh, Common Grace, um, but wrote uh, one that I thought particularly uh, had important things to say about this conversation tonight about how we relate to other creatures. And Brooke, I don't know if you want to read it or you're happy for me to quote you while you sit there watching me. What would you prefer? What would you prefer? Okay, I'm happy to do it. You've, you've, you've been going hard all day. Uh, and I wanted to give Brooke the last word because I think this is a, a great way of wrapping up tonight. Uh, and again, so if you go to Common Grace and click on Climate, you'll get to a whole bunch of reflections. Ask the animals and they will teach you or the birds in the sky, and they will tell you. Speak to the earth, and it will teach you. Or let the fish in the sea inform you. Which of these doesn't know that the hand of the Lord is in all of this? In God's hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all humans. Job 12, 7, 10 reminds us that the animals, the birds, the earth, the fish, and indeed the oceans, the sky, the land, and the rivers, all of God's wondrous creation are connected, precious, to be cared for, and can teach and tell and speak and inform us. Aboriginal peoples have known this and been living out our creator-appointed roles as caretakers of these lands now called Australia for thousands of years. For us, there's no separation between human and non-human. We've lived sustainably, using only what God provided, never taking too much and never taking anything to scarcity or extinction. When we look at the damage and the destruction of the last 225 to 250 years, we know we must come together, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples, and use our hands, our feet and our voices to do better. As Aboriginal peoples, we hear our land screaming and weeping and crying out. We hear it in the Torres Strait Islands watching the sea levels rise. We hear it in the Walpiri country sitting in the hot desert sun. We hear it in Wiradjuri country from the winds on the mountains. It's the voice of the great creator spirit, almighty God, Papa Jesus. So come alongside us, learn from God's appointed caretakers, and together let's act and protect God's wondrous creation in this land we now call Australia and in God's beautiful earth. Thank you, Brooke, for that. And, um, Thank you everyone for what I hope has been a conversation starter for the rest of tonight. Uh, so we've got a bit of um, time together. Uh, so uh, I don't know, maybe if um, uh, we just share some reflections before we get to some questions. Uh, very poignant, you know. 
I mean, we we know what happened to that koala, you know, that appeared on uh, social media. I think it was on Facebook, you know, uh, during the bushfires, and it just perished. So it was uh, very sad. I imagine, you know, that koala we saw that, you know, might have suffered the same fate. That there's suffering still going on because there's lots of koalas that have survived the bushfires, but they're now living in burnt areas, there's no food, there's no water, and, you know, they're starving to death. So, you know, it's really important to, you know, get some things happening about that. Um, I thought that the um, placing us in the genetic span of life was very helpful and seeing how small of a dot that we are in that. And, yeah, I think that's helpful to just kind of stand back and de-centre ourselves as human in the breadth of life that has gone on for, uh, I don't know if you said billions or millions of years um, and will continue after depending on how you think about the end of life. But yeah, I think that's a really like helpful grounding and mindful process to be like, to think about life before and after and where's my place in that and um, yeah. Yeah, I think it um, raises this incredible paradox that Mick might want to say something about later as well that on the one hand we're nothing we're a speck in time in the story of life on earth um, and yet at the same time we're the herald of the sixth massive extinction event on the planet so we're in this moment in time that we happen to live in we're having this incredible impact on the planet that will be imprinted in the geological record for forever um, still acknowledging that you know when we say we, it's not like all humans are equally responsible for what's going on and that's been a big, you know, that's a really important thing to keep in mind as well. I was talking about humanity, but it's not like all humans are having an equal impact on the planet or certainly suffering equally from what's unfolding around us. Um, but yeah, that sense of being nothing and yet almost everything, not really everything, but yeah. The herald of the apocalypse, the four, <laughs> the four horsemen. I just found it interesting when you spoke about the difference between charity and justice. Um, yeah, I've never really thought of that and the fact that like these animals <laughs> really don't deserve um, what human impact has done to them um, and deserve justice. And yes, yeah, so that's just an interesting thing that I'm going to keep thinking on. Related to that, uh, sorry, related to that, but from your introduction, you were saying that we're all visitors, or I don't know what the word you used was, incomers, we're visitors to, to this area, whereas the native wildlife has been here, you know, for however long it's been here. So, you know, what gives us the right to impact it in the way we have? And, you know, we talk about... Um, a reconciliation between, you know, our modern society, white society and, and indigenous peoples, but what about between ourselves and indigenous and native wildlife as well? My reflection on a slightly different tangent um, is that when we lose our sense of wonder and beauty and um, even mystery in life um, when we become 
pragmatic and uh, just looking at the the bottom line or the um, our short-sighted projects that something has to be built or something has to happen um, we lose so much and uh, as a culture we don't have a strong sense of that we we just keep on plowing on and uh, yeah I think for me and, and when I use the word beauty I don't mean like that's a, a bird that has vibrant colour but a lot of living things are not vibrant in their colour but they're beautiful they're, and uh, we lose that. A string of random thoughts that hopefully make some cohesive sense in the end. Um, I think it's it's both valuable and and not. <laughs> now, there's a bunch of paradoxes going around in my head. So we put ourselves in the context of 4.5 billion years of evolution on the planet, and yet when all's said and done, it's human beings discussing with other human beings in a rational, coherent sense about what's happening, and not bacteria or um, birds or whatever. So there's there's a sense in which it's it's helpful in one sense to deconstruct our own um, egocentrism and yet another it's it doesn't leave us with any way forward and I guess the other th part of the puzzle the thing in my head is that when the earth first formed the sun was 30% dimmer than it was now and so um, methane producing bacteria um, produced methane as a tautologist statement which kept the planet warm enough for liquid water and hence the evolution of life and then most of those went extinct when photosynthetic life appeared so there was a mass extinction that was totally um, without conscious reflective agency but there was still animal agency so I guess what I'm driving at is that um, we can decentralize ourselves from the evolutionary narrative in one sense and that's that's kind of depowering because when you look at the whole sweep of evolutionary history, there's been a whole bunch of things that have happened without reflective thought, and yet we're capable of that. So, and you're alluding to when you dropped my name, was that we can talk a lot about this current geological era as the Anthropocene, the era where human beings are a, a geological force, but it is, it is misnomer, because it's not being human, it's a particular way of being human that's problematic, and it is, uh, Western capitalism that's informed by a particular approach to Western Christianity. So there's a, I'm not sure where I'm precisely going with that other than to say there's a lot of intellectual work to be done. Um, I'm still not ashamed to be a human being, but I am ashamed of what humanity generally and what white males like myself have done in particular. So, you know, I deconstruct myself as a human, but only so far as I return to what it is to really be human and that's, I guess, where Christ comes in and canonic ethic and all sorts of other things we could talk about. Anyway, enough rambling for a second. That's good. And that's what, I, yeah, the, the idea that it's, yeah, we have to keep not saying that humans have done it yeah. or, or use we too much. And I mean, if we go back far enough, it's, you know, most evolutionists now would say that human history probably goes back 200,000 years or so. Um, and humans have been living on this continent for 60 to 90 to 50,000 years, um, depending on where and how you measure it. Uh, but the impact of human beings on Australia um, is measurably different in the last 200 years <laughs> than it has been for those tens of millennia. Um, yeah, so there are definitely ways to be human that are life-giving and, uh, and have us as part of the Earth family, not this kind of brat that has just emerged. 
Oh, sorry. To go back to your metaphor of, of singing a song, it's, we've been singing terribly out of tune, but human beings have such a deep capacity to sing, if you will, in, in ways that would add to and not detract from the symphony of life, if I can use that metaphor. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. Work it for all um, <laughs> I mean, and, and then theologically, you'd, you'd read something like, and, and again, I, I suppose this is going back to something of an anthropocentrism, but Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Genesis, would say something similar that the 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 song or the the hymn or, or choir of life is incomplete without humans, but we're doing a terrible job. You know what we've produced is very discordant. So if you take some value out of the creation stories of human responsibility to add to the order rather than to create more chaos, um, then we have an active role that we could be playing. But we need to. It does require what you've been talking about, standing back from ourselves in a way and seeing that it's not just our song to sing, but we're part of a, a much bigger symphony. But the fact that we can reflect upon our place makes us different from other, other singers or other performers. Um, and I think that's uh, where uh, learning from Aboriginal peoples is so important when you um, sit with us with our dreaming stories and dreaming many of you have probably heard me say is it's an English word that doesn't effectively describe each nation has their different word for what the dreaming is which is in effect a whole system of law and living and when you sit with our particular um, creation story in each nation um, and the one that I often reflect on as told in the First Peoples exhibition in the Melbourne Museum and you can actually sit in Bunjil's nest and Bunjil um, is the creator um, and is a massive eagle but Bunjil um, and they retell the story they say in um, Wurundjeri as well as in English Bunjil sung the country and then Bunjil sung um, the people uh, and then Bunjil sung the law and so singing is so important and it comes from the creator to us as peoples and then it's our song lines that traverse these lands now called Australia um, and a song line isn't just in one country and this is where Bruce Pascoe in Dark Emu, um, I loved his reference that he talked about a jigsaw mutualism so whilst you have your responsibility for your country, your piece of the puzzle, um, you know you're part of a bigger picture, even though you might never see the whole breadth of these lands now called Australia. But there's a particular song line that goes from the west coast of Australia to the east coast, which traverses so many different nations and our story is carried through song. And so you would have to pass that story to the next nation and then they would pass it to the next nation. So you've got this whole massive interconnectedness um, based on song and dance and story through that um, that's interconnected with creation. Um, and it was simply, it's a system of law and living. Um, and uh, with the, the impacts of colonisation, how that story is chopped up, we now have different borders um, that our borders of our nations are embedded in the landscape as drawn by the creator. Whereas now we have these borders that have changed over time. If you ever have a look at the progression of the state and territory borders of Australia, it's um, fascinating, these human-drawn borders that are all about profit and greed and land ownership um, that was never part of our cultures. And, and I talked about um, 
uh, the Aura Fisher women. Uh, I've been telling this story, I often tell it, but um, particularly around International Women's Day about Barangaroo. And so here in Sydney, you'll see Barangaroo's name everywhere, but many people don't. She was a real person um, and to know her story. And um, uh, the Aura Fisher women were the ones that would gather the fish for the whole community, including for the men, and they would take their children on their canoes as they um, did their work. Uh, and this one day, the colonisers... Um, caught 4,000 fish in one go, which was far too many, even if you combined the colonisers as well as the Aboriginal people. It was far too many. They had overfished in that one act um, at colonisation. And uh, even further, not only did they then put the fish out of balance, they broke the culture because they gave the fish to the men. And Barangaroo got back with the Aura Fisher women and saw the Aboriginal men eating the fish that they had not caught as the Aura Fisher women. And so was furious, um, and you can read these accounts. Um, and uh, so she was furious at the Aboriginal men because they'd broken this whole system of law and living and furious at the colonisers for breaking it as well. And so she marches up to government house in her dress and they stop her and they say, you can't come in because you don't have clothes on. And she continued to walk past them and she sat at their table. Um, but, you know, today sh- her name is just a name on some signs that people don't know this incredible story, but that it's um, a big piece of that story is how we came out of balance um, and what we have to learn from that. I mean, you know, to think about catching 4,000 fish in one day in Sydney Harbour uh, today, I-, I don't think it's even possible. Um, and so just how much even that story tells us about how things have changed. One of the things I'm really impressed with is I, and I don't know a lot as yet <laughs> about dreaming stories or whatever is the best term of it, is how it actually helps us open and understand the Bible a lot better. So I hear constantly from you and from uh, Auntie Di and other people that if you look after country, country will look after you. Uh, and there's a real, um, I think, liturgical aspect of caring uh, for country, and that's what Genesis 1 is, for example. It's another creation story, and it's actually a liturgical text um, that recapitulates the renewal of the new year, which start, started in spring with God's provision. And if it's a piece of liturgy, then maybe it was something that was sung. And so the echoes and the resonances are ever stronger. The other is um, the book of the Bible that most of you won't have read, and that's Leviticus. And the more I understand that, the more that's, again, it's law and law because it's the priestly tradition and it's, there's a narrative behind it, but it, it's, it's real world, it's real life, and it talks about the agency of, of country, of, of land. If you defile yourselves, you defile the land, the land will vomit you out. And so I just, just hearing the same wisdom, and, I, and we've had this conversation about that we've just inherited a terribly dualistic view of things in the West and you know, more conservative Christians should not be frightened of Aboriginal Christianity because you'll actually be our guide forward to understand the scriptures that we've had for so long and misread them. So, grateful for your work. Um, Jason, the question you asked us was about how do we find justice? What does justice mean for the animals? For non-humans, what does justice mean for non-humans? Does anyone want to have a go? So one of the uh, the animals that we have around here are magpies. 
and uh, I go for a run around Rushkata's Bay Park, so I, I keep an eye out for them. And um, someone, uh, I was, uh, not my direct experience, I was just reading this probably somewhere on Facebook, but there was a um, guy who decided to uh, get in ahead of the uh, swooping season and try not to alienate uh, his local magpies. So he um, actually left little bits of meat out for them just to indicate that he was a, a friend not, uh, not trying to attack them. But the interesting thing was, and, and, and he was a little bit disappointed about it, was that they, he came out to the front of his house and he found that he'd been left the odd dead lizard occasionally <laughs> as a gift, which he didn't really want. But it was interesting that the, even the, the magpies had a sense, if you will, of, of justice, uh, or at least trying to help their neighbour. Um, It'd be really nice if, if we were able to get to the same level as the magpies. My mum has 45 magpie pets. <laughs> they come inside and everything. Yeah, it's quite incredible. And they've proven now scientifically that magpies can build relationship and they hold a generational memory as well. Um, and uh, so, you know, the 45 bring their babies and the babies. So I think she's got like three generations now that all come and visit her. And they actually do a particular song when it's time for them to eat something. Not that she should be feeding them. But yeah, We've got only two magpies that visit us each morning, but one of them, as soon as you walk out the back door, it starts doing this dance where it flaps up and twirls about and the other one doesn't. It just sort of sits there and waits. But Yeah, yeah um, I think to do justice to other creatures apart from homo sapiens is that that we shouldn't be using derogatory words like bird's brain. Uh, apparently uh, scientists have reckoned that uh, birds are smarter than we human beings think they, that what they are. Apparently, you know, uh, they can be, you know, well, they have survived, they have uh, adapted to their environment, you know, uh, even though there had been so many pre predators you know around so you know they, they would have some intelligence in, in that regard although they might not be as smart as human beings but still you know so uh, as far as my take is concerned you know um, I don't know uh, we commonly use the word bird you know uh, bird's brain as a derogatory word and uh, I think that uh, if we do justice to our fellow uh, creatures like birds you know we might uh, really consider about using the word bird's brain. Um, and I think another thing in terms of language, um, I wrote a paper on the ostrich, the emu and the cassowary as the three largest flightless birds and um, I called it, what can the birds of the land tell us? Um, and as I was looking at the cassowary, which I was saying could teach us about sustainability because there's so few of them left and particularly the southern cassowary in Australia. And when you read um, uh, in literature or on the websites what the danger to the cassowary is, it names um, dogs, feral pigs and cars. 
And so for me, I was outraged for the cassowary because what's missing is humans because humans are responsible for the dogs, the feral pigs and the cars. And so even maybe changing our language and looking at these things differently to find justice for the animals might help us to actually claim our responsibility, um, uh, which might not give them justice but alleviates some sort of level of injustice. Small plug, I wrote a book called The Climate of Justice a few years ago and I looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan from the front story and the back story. And the front story gives you the Hebrew concept of mishpat, which is kind of restorative type justice. There's a man who's been robbed of his dignity, of his ability to go about his daily life and business and his relationships with his family. And the Samaritan picks him up and sticks him in the inn and provides for all his needs, not so that he'd stay there forever, but could return to his former level of dignity and ability. And I think, when it, to give you the example, restorative justice would be literally restoration of, of habitat. It would be an active human agency to provide as many um, habitats for creatures, for functioning ecosystems. It's, it's, it's not simply getting out of the way, although sometimes it is, and sometimes that's the best way of, of rebuilding habitat, but it's actively engaging in um, in that restoration and providing creatures the opportunity to dignity and feed themselves or biblically for God to feed them through a process set in place. And the other he Hebrew concept comes out of the backstory, the parable of the Good Samaritan is broken systems. So it's sadaka, true righteousness. So it means justice for the creatures is dismantling the systems that's subject them to such want and suffering in the first place. And that's, dare I say it, Western capitalism and Western dualism and the whole philosophical edifice and way of life that we've we've established. Listening to our indigenous elders as our guide forward. But the third thing I, I seem to be hearing from a lot of people is the relational aspect of justice. Justice is friendship, as you're often saying, uh, and learning what it is to have friendship or genuine relationship with non-human creatures. And part of that is finding, as you say, the right kind of vocabulary and language for them. Um, because sometimes I think we're far more animalistic in the way in which we understand it than creatures who, have ex who demonstrate far more dignity and nobility than we do. And the, the other thing about the parable of the Samaritan is the person that cops the flogging only cops it once and then it stops and they looked after whereas the earth continues to get a flogging so it raises that question of what do we do to stop the robbers from robbing the earth? Yeah, so there's the, lots of aspects to justice for animals. Um, you can look at the scriptures and you know, justice in the laws in the Old Testament and you have examples of you know, not cooking a kid in its mother's milk. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's many, many laws that relate to animals and our treatment of, of them. Um, and then a lot of our modern western laws you know in the uk and then you know other legal systems in australia and other places that have been based on them have roots in you know biblical law um but then away from that if we're talking about animals um and and not just animals but um just you know the um, environment in general uh, it seems to me that in the back of our minds as Australians, we don't care enough about the environment and we think, oh, Australia is such a big place that 
if this place gets, you know, if this little bit gets destroyed, well, there's lots of other land. And so we sort of, and it's the same with animals, you know, if you destroy this um, habitat of this particular, you know, corroboree frog or whatever it is, oh, well, there's something else that, you know, life will go on. And so we sort of think, oh, this particular thing isn't important because there's lots of other stuff. But we'd never say that in our own human legal system. We'd never say, you know, if someone got attacked or if someone got raped or if someone got murdered, we'd never say, well, that's just one person. There's lots of other people that haven't, you know, so we'll just ignore that. So I think that's a really important concept to sort of think about in terms of justice. But, I mean, there's so many aspects to it, you know. We, we do do that. I remember reading something or other and they, they were talking about, oh, I, I think it might have been famine or drought overseas. Um, it's a long time since I read the story and, and they were probing this white Australian woman's attitudes and she really did have at the heart that oh, a brown-skinned woman overseas can simply have another child if they lose one. Uh, so the, we're so good at othering whether it's, you know, and, and if you look back in, in history and to Bacon and, and so on, that, that there's no coincidence that um, the development of philosophy, that animals were mere automata is at the same time that colonialism kicked off and um, non-Europeans or non-European males, to be precise, were seen as less than human and identified with nature. So I think we're really good at doing that. It's just a lot easier if it doesn't have two legs and two hands and a fa human face on it. And I mean, it goes back to the scriptures with men's treatment of women and, you know, the, the differential Hebrew laws about how you had to treat Hebrew people versus other people. So, yeah, we're, we're good at creating categories and that's been really good for the survival of life. So you can tell, if that is, is that food or is it dangerous? Is that a predator, prey or whatever? But, yeah, we've, we use it to justify a whole lot of, uh, whole lot of things. And, and I mean, I, I kind of asked the question about justice because I find it a really tricky word, even just within human justice. Like, what does it really mean? And it, like, in, and because Common Grace talks about Jesus and justice so much, I had to think, because hmm. um, in some ways it seems like the lowest common denominator. Like, you know, there's justice, and then there's compassion and graciousness, and all these other things to get to. But yeah, so what's the kind of bottom line? And some part of it seems to me that um, you know we're not going to end suffering for people and we're not really talking about fairness because life isn't fair some people will have accidents and be lame you know stuff happens but then it kind of seems like everybody should have an equal chance of having something bad happen to them instead of it just always happening and and so there's something about life that's kind of the same like creating the space for life to live and sure that bird might get eaten by a an eagle five seconds after that photo is taken, but that's not unjust, that's just life. But if it's locked in a cage for its entire life because somebody likes to look at it, that seems different. And, you know, chickens wandering around and then getting eaten, to me that's, you know, vastly different from chickens being stuck in a cage and then eaten because it's cheaper and more convenient. So there's, yeah. Um, yeah. And then what does it mean for humans to actually be... Um, gracious and uh, that kind of, um, uh, you know, the first must be last 
thing. Like if we see ourselves as the most rational and the most loving and the most everything species, then Jesus' teaching would seem to flip that on its head. We don't therefore get the most privilege. We have the most kind of service. So, I don't know. No metaphor bears close examination and probably notice, nor does any one word. Um, I was just thinking uh, a common thread seems to be, and this is something that I've been um, kind of learning in the way that Aboriginal people approach land is that we don't own it. Uh, and something that is so Western is we own the life of animals. We own the land. Uh, that's kind of the framework in which... So to seek justice is, uh, for our non-human neighbours is to say, I don't own you. Um, and, yeah, I think that can come in, like, little things about, you know, the, the way that, um, you know, we produce our animal products and things like that. And um, even just, like, kind of hearing some of the ways that people use their backyard and thinking about, you know, uh, I could take the attitude that, I really want this kind of tree here, um, you know, and, but actually if I listen to the land and think what does, what does the land need here or what, does, what do the animals need here or what's the history here, how can uh, I help this place, um, yeah, not for my benefit but see what would benefit uh, in the little small ways around us and the way that we treat other life uh, is that it's not mine, it's actually has its own ownership and uh, it seems to be like a very, very significant thing to learn from Aboriginal peoples um, is the, yeah, their attitude. Um, I think one thing for me is I, uh, with the photo of the koala and to look into the eyes of the koala and um, uh, particularly in that photo and what really struck me after the bushfires is um, like, you know, we had so many news reports about what was happening to the koalas and where they were um, uh, getting drinks from uh, humans and so forth. And then just after the bushfires, there was this incidence of logging. I think it was Victoria. Um, and the koalas were dying and there were dead koalas from the logging, but yet there's not the same outrage. And so I'm still confused as to why the bushfires is different to logging and um, when we think about the capitalism that comes in from the logging and, well, you know, it's progress, it's capitalism, I assume, is the language, but why does the image not strike us the same? I'm confused by that. Yeah, and, and that example wasn't actually just logging, it was just land clearing with a bulldozer, you know, just... <laughs> It wasn't harvesting trees to, to use, you know, in in you know the normal sense that you see with logging. It was just destruction. Um, but you you're right, you know. It, bushfires, you know, we have an effect on the climate and the landscape. We have an effect, but that was a a direct action, you know, that that, that someone went ahead and did. About justice. Just talking about justice. I think seriously, if we want to talk about justice for other creatures other than Homo sapiens, we really have to be seriously considering whether Homo sapiens should be just predominantly we become vegetarians. I mean, if you look at some of the abattoirs around, 
I mean, the way that they slaughter, you know, all the cows, it's, it's really not, not kosher. I mean, you know, it's, it's really very barbaric. Sure, you know, you might draw an analogy of a tiger, you know, uh, killing, killing a buffalo or killing a cow, you know, just to s satisfy their hunger. I mean, we human beings have got the options of either f becoming a vegetarian or feeding on meat. I think, you know, if you think of the, you know, the kind of a barbarity, you know, that uh, we do, uh, that has been uh, practiced at, at, our, at our abattoirs, you really think twice of, you know, whether you want to continue on being, uh, you know, uh, you know, eating, eating animals, you know, or eating chickens or anything of that. I had a friend at the theological college that preached a sermon basically saying, uh, if you're a real Christian, you won't eat meat. Um, and he was kind of joking and being a bit tongue-in-cheek about it. And I remember at the time listening and thinking, oh, I think if I really listened to this sermon, I might become vegetarian. And I just didn't want to be a vegetarian, so I tried to tune him out. And he forgot it, never preaching it. But um, it kind of sat there with me for years. And then uh, on a spiritual retreat, they sent us all off to... I went for a walk and I found myself looking at a cow and like, looking into its eyes and just going, yeah, all right, I'm not going to eat you anymore. Um, and and I, I guess that reminds me of a conversation that, that's come up uh, in the work I do um, about kind of climate justice, I guess, within the church or climate action and people keep wanting the theological rationale, you know, can we have the two-page theological rationale for this and part of me kind of wants to say if you need a two-page theological rationale for loving the earth and caring about it then like all hope is lost like you know we, we don't have a theological rationale to love our children or to look after them or things we just do it because we are connected to them and love them so I guess there's yeah, there's that relational spiritual component of this um, and I mean now I do eat meat but I eat kangaroo and free-range chicken kind of on the on the compromise that they've had a pretty good life and then it's suddenly ended and over for them. But, um, but yeah, it's even just for decisions about what we eat to be seen as an important thing for Christians to talk about, I think would be a big step forward. Like, what is that? Whatever we decide to do, what is that kind of saying? Um, and in that piece that I wrote that you read, I don't unpack it, but I, may, I say some line... Um, but what I'm uh, saying is so um, uh, for Aboriginal peoples when um, we would take the life of an animal to eat, um, we have the concept of toe to tail. You eat the entire animal um, and you don't take too much. So it's those 4,000 fish that the colonisers got from Eora country. It's up in... Um, uh, Cooktown when Cook um, sailed into there and the Aboriginal people went on to the Endeavour and there were 12 turtles that were slaughtered and Cook is fascinated because the Aboriginal people are fascinated by the turtles and so he writes about they took more interest in the turtles than anything else. The reason they took the interest in the turtles is because, well, whose were they to take in the first place? Um, they had already killed these 12 turtles which was too many for the people on the ship and so they were counting the resources and the cost and the waste already and so I think that's um, 
part of the conversation that we should be having is about the waste and um, uh, when we are taking the lives of the animals to eat and sustain us and what we can learn from that. Yes, I remembered what I was going to say. Um, Another thing about justice for wildlife is that in response to the bushfires, millions of dollars was donated to charity for the purpose of rescuing wildlife. And the vast majority of that money is sitting in a bank account controlled by various large charities that I'm not going to name here. Um, and it's appalling and there's there's multitudes of small groups that are doing volunteer work, you know, doing good work, that they don't have access to these funds that people gave with the intention of uh, of supporting supporting that work. And if you go onto the website of the Australian Charities and Not for Profits um, Commission, every charity has to publish their annual reports and there's a large charity that I'm not going to name again but if you go on you can read their report for the last financial year and more than 60% of donations to that charity goes in wages to their own people and that's not looking at other aspects of admin and only a tiny little percentage of money that's donated to charity for wildlife actually goes to helping the wildlife. So that, to me, is a massive thing of just injustice. Uh, does anyone have any questions um, for Jason? Actually, I was uh, speaking to a colleague of mine regarding the coronavirus and he's a non-Christian. And he says that if God created everything, he would have created the, uh, he, he asked, uh, did he create the, the coronial virus? And I, you know, and I say, yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's likely that uh, God would have created the coronial virus. My question to Jason is that, uh, I know you're a zoologist, but I'm going to ask you, you know, uh, if you were a microbiologist, uh, uh, why do you think uh, God created uh, a coronavirus? Is it because um, the coronavirus is created by God to teach us Homo sapiens to be humble? It's just that the coronavirus is about one tenth thousand of uh, the size of a human being. Or number two, is uh, God you know, trying to punish us because of our sins? Uh, so, I guess a whole other talk uh, would be my understanding of how life came about, and I don't think God is particularly interested or was particularly influential in the way life, the forms of life that have emerged, um, in the same way that I would love my kids no matter what they end up doing and looking like. God just loves life. And the fact that humans evolved is, is great and we have this amazing relationship with God, but I don't think God made uh, every creature in that way. Having said that, um, you know, the coronavirus and a whole lot of other viruses and things that we're encountering are pretty much a result of humans continuing to encroach and spread and clear forest and come into contact with things that were just doing their own thing. Um, 
so I don't think God made the virus to humble humanity, but I think it's an invitation to be humbled um, and maybe finally understand that the entire planet is not intended to be turned into a giant farm that humans dominate. Was it 97% of the biomass of vertebrate species is now human beings and our domestic livestock? So, you know, we've, we've left so little to the other creatures of the planet. Um, and a lot of that, of course, is humans being pushed into new areas because rich, powerful humans are pushing them there. Um, so, yeah, I'd say it's a invitation to humility and it's going to have the uh, the result is going to be the punishment of human beings but again the punishment of the oldest most frail sickest and most marginal human beings so i think I, yeah okay so that's a clue if god was punishing us with these things it would be wealthy uh high flyers that caught all of this stuff and suffered from it and climate change and everything else not as always seems to happen the people who are done the least to cause the problem and uh, seem to get the biggest impact. So if that's God's method for punishing humanity, then it challenges my entire faith to the core. <laughs> I think so you rich people have done this, so I'm going to hurt these poor people over here until you stop. Seems a sloppy. Anyone else have a question? Let's not leave it on coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, David. So you, you talked earlier about the theological basis for things, and, and I think there's a, there's a very strong tradition of justice through the, the, the Christian tradition, obviously. But when in, you first open the Bible, you come to Genesis and the creation story, and something was created that gave pleasure and I, I think back to the bushfires and uh, a hundred-year-old building, a pub or something, would be destroyed and there was, there was grief at the loss. Um, as well as justice, shouldn't we work more strongly from a theology of protecting this creation that, that we have all around us, just the way we, we, we think about saving buildings during bushfires? Yeah, so I think... Um, uh, I think it might have been in that reading uh, that Brooke quoted, but also in the, you know, the Psalms and um, Proverbs have this sense that life is just doing its thing and it's doing what it's meant to be doing and if humans just paid attention, we'd learn a whole lot about the way we should live and, and a whole lot about God. Um, so before the need to protect, I think, just was the need to live as human beings within our limits in the way human beings are meant to live, and that would have been fine. What we're confronted by now is the fact that some human beings are madly going about destroying the earth, and so the question... So now we're faced with the question of what do the rest of us do that don't want that to happen? So protection is a secondary thing, I guess. Like, I don't think that... Life didn't need human beings. Like, it got along fine before we came along forever. But now that some of us have gone on this crazy path, the rest of us need to kind of protect what's left um, and just give it the chance to, I mean, yeah, we do need some active regeneration now as well, but largely life has amazing processes of restoration if only it could be given enough time to 
do that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I guess the Genesis stories aren't really my creation story anymore. Like, I don't kind of identify with them as, as the main way I understand humanity, but I do think they talk to us about, at this point in history, are we going to be the servants and protectors of creation, um, or are we going to continue on the path of dominion and subduing? Um, it, and I do that knowing that I'm totally complicit because I benefit from it. Like... <laughs> Um, uh, and I, and I think all of us, are constantly tempted with the shortcut to treat other people and other creatures as things. Like, uh, I don't know what it's been like in Sydney, but where we live in the forest, uh, there was a wetland very close to us that's been dry for a number of years, so everything in it was dead. We've had a lot of rain recently, which means it's full of water, which means we've just had literally thousands of mosquitoes um, like every door, every window in our house is a cloud of mosquitoes. Uh, so for the first time in about six years, I bought a can of fly spray um, just to be able to get in and out of the house. But as we kind of talked about it as a family, it was like, well, that's like the shortcut solution is to just poison all the mosquitoes so we can get in and out. But we know that we're surrounded by frogs, fish, lizards that will eat them. They're just not eating them yet because their population needs to recover. Um, so we've kind of, so as much as possible, we're trying to wait patiently without dying of mosquito-borne diseases so, so that the ecosystem can restore itself and it will get back to normal. But it is, you know, it, it's always cheaper to do the faster thing and that usually means someone pays the price for it, whether it's other creatures or other people. So, um, yeah, that's the way society's set up is the cheaper, easier thing to do is usually done by transferring the cost to someone else. Uh, well, um, thank you all so much um, for being here, for participating, for your questions. Um, I think this might be the largest Peace Talks panel we've ever had. Um, so thank you for all participating. Um, but I especially want to thank Jason uh, for presenting uh, here tonight at Peace Talks. Um, and uh, thank you for reminding us um, to tune into the singing of the animals, I think is one of the takeaways that I have um, for your work in uh, bringing in Aboriginal voices to the conversation. Thank you for that. Um, and uh, may we all continue to think about uh, how we find justice and not just charity or compassion uh, for uh, the non-human, our non-human neighbours. Um, so thank you for that language as well. So um, can you please thank Jason? Uh, please remember Peace Talks on the 18th, Saturday the 18th of April. Um, and yeah, just thank you all so much for being here on this cold, uh, chilly, wet night. Uh, and... Um, uh, there's still some drinks and a cup of tea um, if you'd like a cup of tea before you head home. So uh, thanks for being here and we'll see you next time. <laughs>